Welcome to Fallon Forum. This is uh, Fallon Forum for June 18th, 2018. This is Dr. Charles Goldman. I'm going to be sitting in for Ed today, who's still in Ireland. And uh, first, I'd like to thank our home station, La Reina, 1260 AM and 96.5 FM in Des Moines, Iowa, and to the other stations around the country that broadcast our show. You can also listen online or as a podcast, and the program, uh, the program is live streamed on the Fallon Forum uh, Facebook page most days, but not today. So we are very fortunate today to uh, have a guest uh, so that I don't have to do the whole show <laughs> an hour and 20 minutes myself, and that is uh, Tom Yoakum. Tom Yoakum is a uh, experienced legislator from uh, initially Dubuque, Iowa, spent 20 years, I believe, in the 18. 18 years in the Iowa House of Representatives, was elected at age 22, turned 23 before he uh, started his term, and ultimately uh, spent uh, 10 years as the uh, chairman of the House Appropriations, uh, Appropriations Committee. And um, Tom's going to spend most of the hour with us. Um, and we asked Tom to come in to talk about something which is most likely going to be the main issue as we go forward into the midterms. And that is that the Republicans don't have much to run on, obviously. Um, their only legislative achievement, if you want to call it that, was the tax bill right before the end of the year. And now, of course, um, we have the president trumpeting that this is the greatest economy ever. Uh, they point to the fact that unemployment is at levels we haven't seen for decades. And um, that is going to be their main theme. By the same token, wage growth is zero. And that has been the case for almost 40 years in the United States. In fact, it's gotten worse under Donald Trump as compared to the, the uh, Obama administration. So the question is, and this is what we'll start with, for Tom, what's wrong with this picture of supposedly low unemployment and wages going nowhere? Well, the unemployment rate had been going down before Trump was elected. Um, the fact is, you know, what we were talking, what Ed talked to me about when I got, came onto this program is he wanted to talk about income inequality. And it basically, if you look at the situation that we have, um, in 2017, uh, Republicans in the legislature and the governor um, took two actions that are going to have long-term repercussions for working people. The first was uh, when they basically gutted Chapter 20, which is the collective bargaining bill for public employees, and that affected every public worker. Uh, the second was when they gutted workers' compensation, which workers' compensation has always been a program that was put together for the benefit of workers and employers to give some st stability. If you were injured on the job, you were guaranteed that you were going to get um, compensation that would allow you to maintain your lifestyle. Um, so those two things went out the window. Um, but that's really a continuation of the policy. We talk about income inequality and how do you fix that, and people talk about tax policy, um, people talk about legislation, uh, but there are so many other things that factor into it, and what we're faced with in this election is, on the national level and on the state level, is who are the appointments that are being made, what can we do to strengthen a worker's right to organize. I mean, all of those things come into question. Um, 
So the problem that we have is people are looking at the selection as an us against them, um, and if a candidate isn't pure enough, we're not going to vote for them, but we forget about the fact that um, what happens with the courts what happens with legislation, what happens with tax policy, and how we can work together to promote issues that are important to us. Which issues do you see in particular as being the purity issues that are um, you know, causing potential, let's say, Democratic voters to move away from candidates? Well, I think the one issue that people uh, that I hear about our nominee for governor is that he's a wealthy person, so therefore he can't he can't fight for people who aren't wealthy, that he has, that he's part of the establishment. Um, as opposed to the president who is a, a populist hero and claims he's a billionaire, we don't really know. Well, the fact is, is that on issues that matter to working people, Fred Hubble is the candidate who has the right positions and the right perspective and surrounds himself with the right people. So in in your perception, and you've you know gotten to see not just the national picture, but obviously in Iowa for a very long period of time, longer than myself. I mean, what are the the factors that you think have created income inequality in the United States? And actually, it, before you answer that, I think it's an important thing the, to understand that when you're looking at the 0.1 percent, the people who we perceive as rich, it's not really income inequality. Most of those people have wealth that is handed to them from, you know, Family, et cetera. So there, it's not even income. The group that really is the is where the income inequality is the group right below them. What's being called now the nine point nine percent, whose average net worth is around two and a half million dollars. Mostly mid level professionals uh, in corporations. It's it's physicians, it's lawyers, it's people like that. It's not small business owners, despite the you know the discussion we always have about them being as part of that. And that's the group who does subsist on income. And that's the group, actually, that is more prone to be taxed because they make income. And that's the group that, in spite of all the talk about Donald Trump being elected by disaffected white working class, it was, in fact, people making, on average, $70,000 $80,000 a year who voted primarily for Donald Trump. It was not necessarily the disaffected white working class voter. So, I mean, what has created that Boundary between professionals and mid-level corporation people and people who work. And understand, people who work on production or are not supervisors in, in any enterprise make up 80% of the workforce. But they're going the wrong direction. Well, and I think you can point back to in the 1950s when unions were strong, when unions were probably at their strongest point in, in history after going through the 30s and the 40s. Um, that economy, and that went from the 50s, 60s, and 70s, you had strong unions. Um, there were laws that protected the right to bargain. There were laws that um, leveled the playing field between labor and management. When that started going downhill, when, uh, when Reagan took care of PATCO um, and started in policies that were making it go in the Maybe other you direction. Can remind the listeners. Uh, PATCO was the air traffic controllers who went on strike and Reagan fired all of them. Before that, um, it was almost unheard of in Iowa and other states for um, 
you would have action. There would be a strike, and they would bring in strike breakers, and you know, unions were weakened. Reagan appointed people to the National Labor Relations Board that were not friendly to unions, and that has been the policy ever since. There was a time when unions were strong. Um, even non-union com- employees benefited from it because you had in the manufacturing section you had union workers uh, there were companies who didn't want unions instead of spending millions of dollars to keep unions out they paid their workers better and gave them better benefits to uh, dissuade them from joining a union uh, it can all go back to that I mean frankly um, as unions went downhill so did the middle class and you can tie that all back into it and through the court systems through appointments um, we've had people who were hostile to organized labor, and that in turn has affected a lot of industries and a lot of people. Yeah, I think it's an important point because there is no countervening power on the side of the workers anymore. I mean, the unions are down to 80% of their heyday in terms of membership, and the number of corporations is diminishing. Half of publicly traded corporations that were on the stock exchange 20 years ago are gone and because of all the money that's being spent on mergers and acquisitions. And so it, it, here it's really interesting because once again the Republicans and the, cons- and the conservatives in particular took a, a term to their advantage, used the language to their advantage. They were the ones who pushed the right to work laws just like right to life. And to me, the right-to-work laws were basically your right to be underpaid for your work because the, you were negotiating one-on-one, essentially, with corporations that held all the power. Well, right, you know, right-to-work you know, came about at a time when unions were rising. Um, Iowa was one of the first states to pass a right-to-work law. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that was, that was the first step, but there's still, um, if you look at it, take the meat packing industry, for instance. Uh, I grew up in Dubuque, Iowa. The Dubuque Packing Company employed a lot of my family members. It was a good union job. It was dirty work. Um, likelihood of cutting off a finger was pretty good. A lot of men in my neighborhood growing up didn't have all their fingers, but they also had a good paying job. Um, they were in the middle class. When Iowa beef packers came in and took over the market and you started losing union jobs in the packing industry, um, look at the packing industry today as compared to when unions were strong and you had the big three, uh, Swift, Armor, and Hormel, setting the pattern, they were good jobs. Now you have a meatpacking plant in Mason City that's opening up and they have to beg people to come to work. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, those things happen. That affects income inequality. That affects working conditions. It affects workers in general. Well, I mean, when we come back here in a minute, there there are many other things I'd like to talk to Tom about that have changed over the years. Uh, one of them I'd like to talk about is the issue of minimum wage, is how that influences income inequality. I think it's absolutely critical uh, to go back to – you have to go back further than a couple of years ago, which most Americans don't do because the media doesn't ever do that job. But if you go back to 1975, there's an important graph that I've talked about on the show before. Up until 1975, increases in productivity in American industry 
correlated with wage increases. That is that the workers were getting the advantage of their increased productivity. From 1975 onward, those two lines have diverged. So that productivity is up over 300% since the early 60s, but wages are only up 10% since 1975. And of course, that's meaningless because inflation wipes out that 10%. That is what's going on. So the question is, who's getting that money? The workers aren't getting that money. And one worker at a time is not going to be able to extract that money from corporations. And we're talking about income inequality, and we started to talk a little bit about the role of minimum wage in generating income inequality. And you know, Tom was talking before about things that have gone through in Iowa, and one thing we didn't talk about was the um, shutting down of local prerogatives in terms of setting minimum wage. Um, what, what are your thoughts on that? Well, first of all, I believe it was 1987, um, and that's when Branstead was governor and Democrats controlled both houses of the legislature. Um, the chair of the Labor Committee at the time, Gary Scherzan, um, actually got legislation passed establishing an Iowa minimum wage. And at the time, I think the Iowa minimum wage was like 50 cents higher. Um, I don't have the exact figure than the, than the federal minimum wage. And that set in motion what we had hoped to be, uh, once we had that established, that we could go in and continue to increase the state minimum wage above the federal minimum wage. Uh, that didn't happen. Eventually, the federal minimum wage caught up uh, to the Iowa minimum wage. And then I believe in 2007, Democrats increased the minimum wage for the first time in 20 years. Um, again, I think, and, and that is the minimum wage in Iowa right now. And and it will be indefinitely as long as they're indefinitely. Well, and and what what they failed to do, and I and I wish they would have, and I believe even even the floor manager of the bill thought at the time that we would have been better off indexing, so that it would automatically increase. But they didn't do that, and so we're stuck in the situation we have now. Um, increasing the minimum wage is important, you know, and I know the $15 minimum wage is the gold standard, and I understand that, and I support that. If I were in the legislature now, I'd vote for a $15 minimum wage. Uh, but fact is, um, we have a situation in the state now where communities went ahead on their own. Uh, Polk County, I think the city of Des Moines, Cedar Rapids, um, Iowa City, there, there were several communities, local governments, who passed their own minimum wage. And that was local elected officials listening to the voice of the people and doing something about the lack of an increase in the minimum wage. And, and the legislature, in their wisdom, decided to go in and essentially um, cut minimum wages in those communities that raised it. And, you know, the battle for an increase in the minimum, wa minimum wage is important, but it is, I think we have to look at it this way. Um, there are people who say that, you know, when Polk County, and I watched the debate in Polk County, and the Polk County Board of Supervisors, especially the three Democrats on the Board of Supervisors, I think they were able, I think they passed a $10 an hour minimum wage with 
increases in the future. Um, and they were criticized by a lot of people that that wasn't enough. And, of course, that mm-hmm. wasn't enough. But there are people who were saying that if you don't get a $10 or $12 minimum wage or a $15 minimum wage, then don't pass anything. And that's counterproductive. Well, that's that's the, the kind of purity test you're talking and, and about. The purity, and, and that's what I'm talking about, purity. I'm for a $15 an hour minimum wage. If... if, if if the legislature passes a $12 minimum wage and we have a governor uh, uh, who's willing to sign it, um, I'm not going to ask him to veto it because it's not enough because mm-hmm. I'm not on minimum wage. Right. You know, that person who's going to get a $5 an hour increase um, is the one that I'm thinking about. So we have to look at it, but in, in the broader scope of things, again, um, the minimum wage is, is, is the floor. If you increase the minimum wage... Um, People who make above the minimum wage are going to get increases, too. I mean, it has that impact, and that's why it's important. And it also sets a standard for for us to reach. But, I mean, you know, the fight for 15 is important. Um, but if the fight for 15 yields a $12 an hour minimum wage, um, that's just as important. And you don't turn your back on that because it's not enough. And we're to the point now where there is a group of people who everything has to be pure, everything has to be their way, and that doesn't make sense. It doesn't make political sense. It doesn't, um, if the candidate, you know, if my candidate doesn't win, then I'm not going to support the other candidate who who won the primary because I was supporting the pure candidate. That kind of thinking gets us to where we're at today. Yeah, and, and you know, of course, a lot of the minimum wage um, propaganda is well. This is going to hurt small businesses and make us non-competitive. Point of fact is, is that the number, the percentage of workers who work for small businesses in this country has gone steadily down. I don't know where they came up with the numbers that you know during the uh, presidential campaign they're talking about. Well, like well over fifty percent of the jobs are, are created by small businesses. I guess that's if you consider small businesses having a thousand employees. But if you consider a small business having less than fifty employees, that's well less than 25% of the people employed in this country now. Mm-hmm. Most people, it gets back to just what you're saying, they are facing a much larger entity who has to be coerced into giving wage increases. I mean, the same corporations that are saying now they can't find people, right? Record unemployment, yet they say they can't, and, you know, predictably they say they can't find people. And yet, you know, a study came out of the Bureau of Labor uh, Statistics just a couple weeks ago showing that from May 2017 to May 2018, real average hourly wages have gone nowhere and that the median has actually dropped, which is more meaningful. So, I mean, what's going on out there? You know, the worker has no power at this point to to get what they ask for. Well, and the answer to that, well, Republicans passed a tax cut. And that tax cut affects everybody. Uh, the, the fact is, is that the tax cut that most middle-income people make um, get, are going to receive is going to be eaten up in higher tuition costs if their kids are going to college because they haven't been spending enough. They've underfunded the board of regents, so um, higher education costs more. Your tax cut is not going to cover the increases. You know the policies that we have have to be forward-looking and have to take into consideration of giving people access to a better in, better education, whether it's through the community college or whether it's apprenticeship programs or whether it's through a four-year univers 
university, um, the more people who have access to that, the better jobs they're going to get. If you cut off people's access to that, um, then it doesn't matter what the minimum wage is. Um, you know, we need to we need to look long term, and we need to have a broader perspective on what's important. Well, unfortunately, we, we forward. Our, our politics doesn't work that way anymore. I mean, well, the answer that we're being given at this point is let's bring back industries that should have been long dead, like mining coal, um, and let's bring and let's continue with old technologies. And that's the answer. When you're absolutely right, the answer is look to the future. Not just the things you mentioned, but train people to do the jobs of the future. Well, new technology, the jobs that are created by new technology, the one thing that I would say is that you can organize a worker in any industry. Mm -hmm. um, it doesn't, you know, a person doesn't have to work on an assembly line to belong to a union. You know, the service industry and professionals. Um, and I'm saying that the more people that are organized, the better off we all are. Yes. Yeah, so, so, Tom, who do, you, who do you think is getting the money? That differential between wages being paid out and productivity, that spread is obviously trillions of dollars. Who's getting that money? Well, stockholders, um, the Walton family. I mean, you, you, it's not being spread out. It's, it's concentrated. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's, that's obviously, and of course we're engaging class warfare here according yeah. to the Republicans, but that's absolutely the truth, which is that American, American CEOs make more relative to their workers than any CEOs in the world by at least fivefold. And they're not the only problem, because as you said, mm -hmm. in fact, when we come back, we're going to talk about the next problem workers have, which is the courts. And that problem is getting worse and will get worse into the future. So we'll be back in a minute with Fallon Forum. Fallon Forum. This is Dr. Charles Goldman sitting in for Ed, who's uh, off in Ireland. So um, once again, we have Tom Yoakum here with us, and we are talking about income inequality, both here in Iowa and nationally. And uh, before the show, Tom and I were talking, and uh, I think it's critical that we get into the issue of the reconfiguration of the federal courts that are is occurring. Now, obviously, the, the biggest one is the Supreme Court. Uh, in which uh, Neil Gorsuch was inserted in, in probably one of the most reprehensible episodes uh, <laughs> in legislative history in the United States, taking away a sitting president's right to uh, nominate a uh, Supreme Court justice, waiting to see who was going to win the election. Um, but also, uh, unfortunately, the uh, Trump team has been able to nominate and will be able to get in a, a myriad of similar similar Federalist Society clones uh, into lower federal courts, and these these kinds of things will stay with us for decades to come, no matter whatever happens with the Trump administration. Um, and in particular, I guess we'd ask Tom to talk to the issues that have come before the Supreme Court, and I know there's at least two that are critical. Um, one's been decided, and the other one will be decided by the will hear the decision by the end of the month regarding uh, workers' rights. So the first one, I guess, if you could talk to is the issue of uh, uh, class action suits versus arbitration. Well, well and that, that decision really hits at the heart of what unions are all about. Unions are people coming together, work, you know, organizing and collectively 
um, having a voice. Uh, what that decision did is it diluted the power of workers. Uh, an individual against a corporation doesn't stand a chance. Um, you know, our president, um, and I, it's hard for me to say that, but our president um, had a history of um, being sued by small contractors who he refused to pay or underpaid, and he would bury them in paper. Uh, so that they couldn't afford to continue the lawsuit. That's what's going to happen to an individual against the corporation. Um, it's not going to work, so you took away the voice of working people by doing that. But that, you know, that, that's just the tip of the iceberg. Um, Trump's legacy, uh, whether he wins or not in 2020, is going to last, um, is, is going to affect my children and my children's children. The legacy of a president and the court appointees that they make are so far-reaching that, again, when we look at how we're going to vote, um, we have to look beyond individual issues and whether or not this person is pure enough for us. You have to look at the legacy they leave behind. Um, you know, we've been... You know, marriage equality is a, is, is a perfect example. Um, and one Iowa was a client of mine. I, I, I've worked on an LGBT issue since I was in the legislature. Mm -hmm. In 1989, the Iowa House passed a bill adding sexual orientation to the Civil Rights Code. It, it's sad to think about how forward-thinking Iowa has been well, at times. You know, and it, it, and it, never, it never got beyond the Iowa House. But the fact is, is that laid the groundwork. Correct. For the uh, for the Varnum decision, mm -hmm. well, we have the Varnum decision, but what good is the Varnum decision when you're going to have federal judges and Supreme Court justices um, making decisions that are going to impact um, the very people that we fought so hard for? Uh, this is going to have you know uh, we're looking at. Um, women's health care. All of those issues are going to be impacted. And, you know, if I have a person running for office and I agree with him only 75% of the time, I, at least I know that that person um, is not going to vote to confirm a judge that is going to do the things that the uh, justices that have been confirmed under Trump and continue to be confirmed for the next couple of years. You know, we're at a critical point in this country where we have to stop being selfish and worry about the purity tests that we have and look at what can happen with the courts, the justices that are being appointed on the federal level. Uh, we have to look state by state um, who is going to gerrymander districts to um, basically take away the voice of people. Who is going to pass laws like they have in Ohio um, that calls the voter rolls if you haven't voted in two years to make it more difficult? And interestingly about that yeah. decision, yeah. Uh, not surprisingly, Justice Alito, who yeah. totally doctrinaire, um, it, it, it's interesting that the culling of the rolls, and they knew this, the Supreme Court knew this when they made this decision, the calling of the rolls was highly selective. They didn't do any calling of the rolls in rural counties and rural electoral districts. They only called the rolls in cities that were notoriously Democratic-leaning cities. So it wasn't even being equally applied. Well, yeah, and that's that's that was known to the Supreme Court, and yet they said, "Well, this isn't really. This is it's it's, it's the text of the law. It says that you're supposed to be checking your rolls. Not our problem." 
Well, and that is, but it, but it is our problem because we're going to live with that because the, when you do things, and, you know, voter ID laws are one thing, and you know, we, we'll, we'll work around that. They're bad ideas. Right. But, but you go beyond that and do things that are basically, there are some people who only vote in presidential years. Mm-hmm. And in Iowa used to have a policy, and I don't know if they, but every four years they would go through the rolls and they would check and see if, if somebody hasn't had activity in four or five years, um, you know, and check and see if that person is still around. Uh, but, you know, to do it, just automatically go in and say, if you haven't voted in two years, um, we're going to remove your name from the voting list. That doesn't, you know, that affects old people that affects poor people that affects minorities it affects people who move right um, and you know in spite of cross-check and you know uh all, all that goes on with that it's not illegal to be registered in multiple states it's simply illegal to vote in most in <laughs> multiple states absolutely yeah so but what i'm saying there there are consequences um and and we have to be smarter than the opposition well, and to go back to the decision in, in the Epic case, um, you know, I'm sure there are those of you out there who would, would like to know that um, the Supreme Court also supported a couple of years ago that it's perfectly fine for them to bury you in paper when you go get your cell phone and to make you agree as a, as a condition of getting that cell phone that you will only go to arbitration if you have a dispute with them. And arbitration inherently favors the corporation. Um, it and as you're saying, an individual worker and, and and some and these are oftentimes things like either disability issues or not being paid overtime. It's not worth that much money to a lawyer to bring that case individually against a corporation. They're not going to take a case that's worth three to four thousand dollars. That three to four thousand dollars is worth a lot to the person who hasn't been paid. But no lawyer is going to take on retainer a three to four thousand dollar case and then get buried in paper. Well, I'll spend a half a million dollars to keep from settling a three thousand dollar case if it means I'm not going to have to deal with ten thousand other three thousand dollar cases. Exactly. It's, now, it's that simple. The other case that's pending. Um, is the issue of uh, whether it is an uh, abridgment of First Amendment rights that other people who are not members of the union have to be um, have to pay union dues to the degree that they get the advantage of the union bargaining for them? That case has not been decided yet, but it was four four before after Scalia died. We don't have to guess how Gorsuch is going to vote. No, and again, and, and you're talking about fair share. Right. Policies And a fair share policy means if you're a member of a bargaining unit as it pertains to public employees, uh, just use that as an example. If you're a member of the bargaining unit, um, you don't ha- if you're covered by the agreement, you don't have to be a member. You don't have to be a member of ASME uh, to benefit from that. Um, and by law, ASME has to represent you if you have a grievance against your employer. All Fair Share says is that they take into consideration um, what that service is worth, and they charge uh, a portion of what it's not union dues. If your union dues are $50 a month or $20 a month, your fair share might be $10 a month in order to pay for the union to represent you. And and And... Again, it's it's a common sense thing. It used to be called agency shop. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if you get represented, you, nobody gets anything for free. 
um, if you benefit from the con the negotiated contract, if you benefit, if they have to rep if a union has to represent you, if you have a grievance, you should pay something for it. That's pretty simple. Um, they're going the other way, and and basically, um, they're making it harder for unions to survive. And I think that's the ultimate goal is to get rid of unions. And as you say, I mean the the, the heyday. The, the halcyon years for the American worker were post-World War II into the 60s. Yeah. And they do correspond to a couple things. Number one, the um, union enrollment being high and the unions being powerful. More corporations and distributed power among corporations, both market power in terms of integration to deal with, which, which allowed them to play corporation against corporation. Um, and the other thing, of course, which the Republicans don't want to hear, is it was also confiscatory, almost confiscatory tax rates as you got to the high income, uh, you know, people. Mm-hmm. And nevertheless, the post-war economy into the 60s boomed. And really, the only thing that brought it down was the fact that the federal government was trying to fund the Vietnam War on the sly, um, and then taking on obviously social uh, commitments that it previously didn't have. Well. You know, so. What's, what's your advice to workers out there, to non-supervisory production workers? What, what can they do? Well, join a union. A union card is a ticket to the middle class. But more importantly, vote for your long-term interest. Um, don't sit home. Um, look at who, you know, a lot of people vote against their interest. A lot of people stay home because they're not satisfied with the candidate. Um, somebody's going to make those policies and make sure you have a voice in who is making those policies. Yeah, and I think, you know, we're clearly in an era when the American people finally have the opportunity to see um, what is the result of conservative Republican orthodoxy being the, uh, you know, being the leading philosophy of the time. Yeah, well, I get it that people are frustrated. Mm. I get it that there is a, a lot, not a lot of trust in institutions. I mean, Congress, you know, can be a cesspool. You know, it is a swamp across the board. Mm-hmm. Um, but the fact is, um, you're not going to change it by throwing away your vote, and you're not going to change it by sitting at home. And I think that's that's good advice. It's, you know, democracy is a participa- participation sport, <laughs> if that's what we have. Yeah. Um, we're going to spice it up a little bit uh, and talk about how evangelical Christianity um, is not just about what's going on outside of the uh, D.C. Beltway. It's what's going on inside the D.C. Beltway and how it kind of um, merges with uh, climate change denial. So, um, you know, it's interesting. I, I, you know, Tom and I are around the same age. I assume that you had to read uh, uh, Tocqueville's book on democracy in America when you were in school? Yeah, everyone read that. I went to Catholic school. So. Okay, so, you know, and, and in that book, um, you know, the fear that um, Tocqueville uh, documents is of a tyranny of the majority, that the, the American democracy, the American republic was set up to avoid a tyranny of the majority. And what we have now in the United States is obviously a tyranny of the minority. Um, uh, evangelical Protestants make up about 30% of the population in the United States. Of that group, about a third of them, about 10% of the American population, are biblical literalists who believe that the word of the Bible is inviolate and must be, is absolutely predictive, literally, of what will come. 
um, sort of akin to our justices who believe that the Constitution is also inviolate. Um, and, and this interfaces with climate change denial uh, in a somewhat strange way. Um, and just to give some context, there was a, a report a couple days ago in the Times from scientists. I know we don't talk to scientists anymore, but um, pointing out that Antarctica is now melting uh, three times as fast as it was a decade ago. And this information uh, predicts that we will now have about six inches of sea level rise by 2015. doesn't sound like a lot, but of course the problem there is that would flood Brooklyn, New York, among other places, about 20 to 25 times a year. Um, and this information comes from satellites, many of whom will be diverted to other purposes because uh, our government no longer wants to pay for satellites that point to back at Earth to look at what's going on because we have to live in climate change denial. So um, what's really interesting is that we all know that Scott Pruitt is just a tool of the oil and gas interest. I don't think there's any question if you've read his emails from Oklahoma. But there's also another element to Scott Pruitt uh, and some others in the administration, clearly not, doc, not President Trump, um, in that he is, is very clearly from his religious backgrounds a biblical literalist. And um, as Maddie Kane, our producer, was just talking about, biblical literalism does lead to the belief that flooding the earth, that God's not going to flood the earth a second time, right, because it's already happened. You know, and... The, uh, the demise of the earth, or at least of humanity on the earth, is supposed to come by fire. And flooding is not fire. Although, of course, as I was saying before we got back on the, um, got back on the air, uh, if you live in a western state, you may die by fire since yeah. it's, it's fire season continuously now. Um, but it, it, it's a very toxic mix of this belief that prophecy comes directly from the Bible, therefore climate change doesn't fit. But the other part of it, of course, is, and I'm sure Tom will appreciate this, um, the the beginning of the environmental movement was about 1968. Um, Paul Ehrlich and his wife write a book about how we have to uh, uh, maintain the population below a certain level because the carrying capacity of the earth is only so much. And unfortunately, as part of that, they talk about using contraception and abortion as a way of controlling population. Um, so that is the first sort of divergence between evangelicals and the environmentalists. What happens next, of course, is that um, the oil and gas interests decide they've picked a party, uh, and that party is going to be the Republican Party. I mean, what, what is your view of the Republicans in terms of their climate change denial? I mean, you, you, as you said... Uh, it, well, since you're delving into theological territory, um, as somebody who was raised Catholic and educated in Catholic schools, um, uh, Pope Francis is pretty good on that, and I agree with Pope Francis. Um, and he comes at it from a theological standpoint, too, um, as um, popes have done with every... Um, Encyclical, whether mm -hmm. it's Pachum and Chiris, Verum Noverum, or, or, or Pope Francis's. But, you know, I look at the evangelical movement, um, and, you know, I see where they're coming from. And, you know, I've had to deal with that all, all of my life in terms of being a Catholic in politics and, and how do you reconcile um, your faith 
and public policy. And I've always said that, you know, there's a difference between church law and public policy. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, every religion has a right to tell the members of that religion what they should believe and how they should live their lives. They don't have the right to tell everybody else. Um, based on your theology, how they should live their lives. Um, But, again, I look at what's happening now in in politics, whether it's on the environment, whether it's climate change, or whether it's any of the other issues out there. And and we're we're losing track of the the bigger picture. We're fighting at the margins. Mm -hmm. And... You know, un, until we, you know, evangelicals are going to do what evangelicals do. Um, I'm going to do what I do. I'm going to organize and get people to come out to vote in their interest, and uh, everybody else is going to do the same thing. I have to look at it from the basis, you know, I know evangelicals, and because I was raised Roman Catholic, I'm going to go to hell. Mm-hmm. You've gotten the same thing. Well, we, we can't be saved because of what we were taught right. and we're, what we believe. Well, what's really interesting uh-huh. is that um, you know, Protestantism starts as a reaction to the hierarchical religion, in particular Catholicism. And there's much to be said for that. It, it does, in some sense, democratize and universalize the religion. The problem is it's amateur hour mm-hmm. because you've got – You've got people out there like the people who write the Left Behind books, and people are reading that as though those books are literally the Word of God, you know, and and it leads it leads them to these extreme positions, you know. And it's funny. I mean, you know, Jeff Sessions the other day pulls the Bible out to justify what's going on on our southern border, but the point is, is that I mean, I, I can't figure Scott Pruitt out. I understand if you're a tool. You know, owned and, and and kept by the oil and gas exploration, you know, industry. But he's way beyond that. I mean, everything he does is not just about getting rid of all the Obama things. He's he is absolutely, to me, the expression of an evangelical who does not believe that we have to pay attention to this because it's out of our hands anyway. God has decided what's going to happen. Why should we bother? Um, and it is. It's a tyranny in the majority on the rest of us because we're going to go down with them. Well, I think we'd be better off if if we got his wife a Chick Fil A franchise, and, <laughs> well, then, and, and well, then he have a reason. And, then, then he could make some money, and he could quit his job. I don't. Yeah, and uh, but he, um, I don't know why he's still. He he's not a tool of anybody. He's a tool. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, I can't say that from this chair. I can say that when I'm sitting in your chair. Um, well, you know, again, I think that there are many things that the evangelicals believe that I understand their belief. You know, and I understand that, like on the issue of abortion, none of us know when life begins. As a scientist, as a, as a, as a physician, I don't know when life begins. But what, what you're saying is true. In the public policy arena, sometimes you have to move – those things have to be put in the background and do what's good for the majority of people. What is even – I mean, Republicans passed the heartbeat bill, mm-hmm. uh, which essentially outlaws – abortion in Iowa. I mean, right. with very rare exceptions. They also made it more difficult for women to get family planning. Mm-hmm. 
you know, there's a clash there, and and it doesn't make sense. I would say that the people who fought for family planning and fought for prenatal care and did all the other things um, prevented more abortions than any law that's been passed by any anti-abortion people. It's that simple. Absolutely true. I mean, the numbers show that. Well, Tom, thank you. It was a pleasure. I'm glad we had a chance to meet and you had a chance to go on the show. Um, Ed will be back hopefully next Monday. And um, I'd also like to thank Maddie Kane, who's a little bit under the weather, but nevertheless uh, came in and and did her usual yeoman work here. And uh, I'll be back on with Ed sometime in the next couple of weeks. So this is Dr. Charles Goldman, and this has been the Fallon Forum. Thanks for listening. That's my star. How'd he do me? So this is Dr. Charles Goldman again, and we are doing our F show here. Um, I think today I'd like to talk about you know something we refer we hear referred to a lot, um, and that is the the notion of Hitler and Nazism and how it applies to the Trump administration and all these other things. Um, but I think it's worthwhile going back and maybe looking at um, something which is not particularly out of American history that gets neglected. I mean, in terms of um, American racism, how American racism, um, and here not just specifically racism, but also uh, in particular prejudice against the disabled, um, was used by the, the Nazis, Hitler and others, to uh, buttress their own racial beliefs. And in fact, uh, ironically, one of the movements which we now associate with uh, American liberalism, that is Planned Parenthood, started as a, a eugenics movement and not a particularly um, desirable eugenics movement, if there is any such thing as a desirable eugenics movement. Uh, and there's been some you know, recent scholarship on looking at the idea that um, pre-World War II America uh, influenced the Nazis in ways that uh, most people have neglected. Now, for instance, um, one of the things that struck Hitler about American, the American racial experience was the fact that we seem to completely ignore the, the Holocaust that we visited on Native Americans in this country. Um, and between 1500 and 1900, the Native American population of U.S. territories dropped from several million to under 200,000. Now, Americans have sort of had this depicted as this was done under situations of warfare, but obviously it wasn't predominantly done that way. It was done by things such as, you know, the Trail of Tears, putting Indians on reservations on undesirable land, which was from which they had trouble being able to feed themselves. And um, we, we talk little about this. So, yes, it didn't look like the concentration camps of World War II, but uh, he took a lot of, according to the scholarship, Hitler took a lot of... Uh, comfort in the fact that uh, the American population was pretty able to look past what had been done to the Native Americans. Um, In a stricter sense, the Jim Crow laws of the American South uh, were incorporated into uh, German racial law. But in particular, the sterilization program that was going on in the United States, I mean, many people may not know that... um, there were, in fact, mandatory sterilization laws for people who were deemed 
to be of low intelligence or have disabilities to avoid them uh, passing genes uh, further along in, into the population. And in fact, the um, sterilization law, the first one I believe was in Indiana, um, the sterilization law in Virginia was actually upheld by the Supreme Court in, the ni- in 1927 um, by an 8 to 1 majority. And the 8 to 1 majority that upheld it includes such legendary uh, judges as Oliver Wendell Holmes, Taft, and Louis Brandeis. And in fact, Virginia's mandatory sterilization law wasn't repealed until 1974. Uh, another thing that um, is ironic is that the first death by, uh, first execution by a gas chamber was actually done in the United States in Nevada in the 1920s. And the uh, agent used was actually the same as eventually the Nazis would use later on. Uh, they also took a lot of um, comfort in the fact that the Immigration Act of 1924. Uh, recognized uh, racial quotas and national quotas, and they didn't see this as any different than much of what they were trying to do in Germany. Um, For those of you who know the true history of Margaret Sanger, um, the original entity uh, that she created was not Planned Parenthood. It was actually called the Birth Control League, and it was created by Sanger in 1917. About five years later, she wrote a book in which she advocated that there be mandatory birth control and IQ testing for all lower class members of society and that um, we should not do philanthropy for the lower classes because it would allow the lower classes then to propagate um, and be fruitful. Uh, Sanger asserted 70% of the population had an intellect less than a 15-year-old and that people should have to get licenses to have children. So while obviously having contraception be available was a societal good, it did not come from uh, someone who saw society in in the benevolent way that uh, I think most of us uh, see it. Um, Now, clearly, with time, America has moved away from some of this. But I think we see what's going on, for instance, with the NFL issue. Um, Fealty to the United States seems to be extremely, is, is, is now exemplified by a very shallow um, kind of activity. Uh, you, you go to a sporting event and uh, you're, you sing the national anthem or God Bless America, and that somehow is seen as a patriotic act. And it allows people to exist in this deception of American exceptionalism. Um, you know, everybody wants America to be that shining city on the hill of, of Ronald Reagan. But I think that Americans are uh, illiterate, not in the sense of Margaret Sanger, but they're illiterate of civics. They're illiterate of our own country's history, and they're illiterate of the many missteps that we've had along the way. And I think that uh, it is um, it's difficult for people who are educated, for me to see people who are educated who are, are so unwilling to see the institutional racism sexism, views toward uh, disabled that still predominate in this country. You know, and I think a lot of people feel, well, I don't live in the American South and we didn't have anything to do with slavery. Well, that's not the only racial crimes that this country has committed. And I think it'd be worthwhile to uh, understand that 
the the fact that Nazism still seems to have an appeal for a portion of our population is really not all that surprising. There are many elements that are fairly recent in our body politic that, um, as I said, Hitler and Nazi thinkers were able to look at America as an example for what they were doing. Um, and I know that's not how it's depicted, not how it's depicted in, in American war films or anything else, but that is the reality. I think it, it is time for us to, to be sanguine about some of the things that this country has supported in the past and hopefully will not support going into the future. Once again, this is the Found Forum, Dr. Charles Goldman. So earlier in the show, we, um, this is Charles Goldman, earlier in the show, we talked about uh, some of the factors that uh, have gone into the increasing income inequality in the United States. And, um, you know, to some degree, we talked about the usual suspects, in particular uh, CEOs of uh, large corporations. But what's interesting is that um, there's a, a fascinating article in the Atlantic Monthly that came out in May and a book uh, by Stephen Brill called Tailspin, which uh, is making me uh, look at myself and those of my economic class in a different light. And, and Matthew Stewart's article um, is called The 9.9% is the New American Aristocracy. And as we said during the show, this, this is mostly people who are professionals, mid-level executives and corporations, um, some larger business owners, people who went and got MBAs and, and function in our corporate uh, world in, at, at that level. Um, we insist we're middle class, but we're not. And uh, we clearly are diverging away from the other 90% of people in our society in terms of economic achievement. Not unsurprisingly, 90% of that class is white, uh, about 8% are Asian or other minorities, and very, very few in that class are, in fact, either African-American or Hispanic. Um, and what the... the um, concern here is that many of the things that allowed us to uh, achieve economic success in um, the American economy are, are now um, holding up others' ability to do so. Um, and some of these things, I, I think the main thing, in fact, is being pointed out is that we have a, a misplaced faith in autonomy and self. Basically, uh, institutions are things we pass through for us to succeed. We um, do not act in a corporate manner uh, in many ways. And um, it set up a meritocracy which benefits us and perhaps our children, but it is not benefiting the rest of the United States. And I think that uh, as a class, we need to uh, reexamine uh, whether all these things that we think uh, we've done are um, – Need, should be continued because uh, there's a whole burgeoning population behind us is not going to succeed by emulating uh, what we've done up to this point. And um, it's perhaps something we'll take up in more detail on a, a, a later show. But again, if you're one of that 9.9%, you might want to pick up the article uh, in Atlantic or pick up Steve Brill's book. I'm not chilling for his book. But... Um, it, it might make you re-examine some of the things that we uh, take for granted as successful people in this country. It's Dr. Charles Goldman for the Fallon Forum. Mm-hmm.